Thank you, Mike. It's beautiful. If you have your Bibles, and we also have these blue Bibles now that are in the pews, we have exchanged those Bibles that were there before, and these are the ESV Bibles, and those are for taking. So if you know somebody that doesn't have a Bible and wants a Bible, or you don't have a Bible and you want to take one with you, that's what they're there for. So, and you can also follow along with those as well. Matthew chapter 20, verses 1 to 16. We're in a study on the parables, stories from the king. Thomas Aquinas, who wrote hundreds of years ago, said that envy is a special sorrow over another's goods. And he said this. He said, the object both of charity and envy is our neighbor's good. The object's the same. But by contrary movement, since charity rejoices in our neighbor's good, while envy grieves over it. The object is the same. It's neighbor's good. If our response is charity, well, that's good. If our response is envy and grieving, that's bad. Well, the first hour's workers in this parable I'm going to read in Matthew 20, they, they were happy as could be with their wage. They were just fine with it until other workers were hired. And then as there were more and more workers, and then when they got paid, once you have these workers, now we have comparison. And the comparison led to envy. So listen afresh to this story. For the kingdom of heaven is like the master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And, he said, and, he, and to them he said, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right I will give you. So they went. Going out again at about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, because no one has hired us. He said to them, well, you go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to the foreman, call the laborers, pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more. But each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, these last worked only one hour, and you made them equal to us who borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to, to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first and the first last. Let me pray. Father, we ask that you would, by your Spirit, turn on the searchlight and root out the cancer in our own souls and pray for your gospel to go down deep into these territories that resist you. And may all of our heart being, all of us, all of our inward being love you. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to look at, the, at this parable. All the, the outline are all C's this morning. 
So we've got the context, the contrast, the contract, the compassion, the complaint, the clarification, and the cancer of the soul. So first, let's begin with the context here. Jesus is responding to Peter's question in chapter 19. And in chapter 19, if you go back a chapter, Peter says, we've left everything to follow you. What will then, what will then there be for us? You see, he had just heard about the rich young ruler who went away sad because he had these great possessions and Peter's kind of taken back by that and he's thinking, man, if the rich man doesn't get anything, what's in it for me? I mean, we've left all this stuff. We've made some serious sacrifices here. What's in it for us, Jesus? And Jesus reminds them in 1927, uh, he, he assures Peter that he will be rewarded, but, he, but in this subtle promising of reward, it's also a subtle rebuke that he makes clear to us that even the rewards are by his grace. And they should not cause us to think that we are entitled to rewards based on our efforts. Quid pro quo. You scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. We're reminded in John 1.16 that from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. If you remember nothing else in this whole sermon, just remember John 1.16. It's like this most profound verse that never gets chewed on. From his fullness, we have all received what? Grace upon grace. It's this artesian well that is never exhausted. And even the rewards that are given in this life and the, and the life and the age to come are by the grace of God. And so Jesus actually promises Peter, he says, that he'll receive a hundred times as much. Can you imagine? hundredfold. Now, a hundred percent is double your money or double your investment. But that's not what Jesus is saying here in chapter 19. To magnify to Peter that the kingdom of God is all about grace, he's saying you're going to be given a hundred times as much. I'm not great with math, but to me that's a 10,000% return. It's all about grace. We enter by grace, we grow by grace. We're sustained by grace, we finish by grace. Somehow the first hour workers forgot that. And those who've been in the kingdom for a while and the longest can easily forget the principle when we see God's bountiful grace being bestowed upon others who we don't think should be ahead of us. And yet God exalts them by his sovereign grace. And he has the right to say, since it's all by grace, many who are first shall be last, and the last shall be first. And you notice that's the bookends of the parable. Chapter 9, 19 ends with, many who are first will be last, and the last first. And then verse 16 ends with the same thing. So we know this parable is all about illustrating this principle. We need this to beat into our heads continually, because we have a merit-mongrel mindset. We fall into the trap that life is really about living by grit alone, not grace alone. Sola bootstrapsa, okay? <laughs> and we find ourselves telling God that he owes us something, rather than admitting he owes me nothing but the pit. And it's this idea, after all these years I've lived for you, and this is the thanks I get? when something bad happens. Rosemary Miller in her book, From Fear to Freedom, she expresses this succinctly, this kind of merit mongrel mentality. We keep his laws and it's his responsibility to tilt the universe in my favor. I mean, quid pro quo, I do my part, 
And it's your job, Lord, to bless. A plus B equals C. I obey, you reward. Right? Isn't that a Christian life? No. It's so common in our thinking that we don't even realize it. And I wonder how many of you were watching the Nationals implode in game five on the other night. Was there a few people watching? I mean, we've been down this road a few times as, as sports fans. And, and if you wonder about envy, if you wonder why you don't like the Yankees if you're watching them, it's because of envy. And if you're wondering why you don't like the Patriots, it's really because it's really, you know, it's, your problem is really envy. It's mine. I envy them. They're always there. They always win. It's like the Yankees again, the Patriots again. Please, Tom Brady, how many fingers do you need for rings? You know, there's, there's an envy in us. We have to be honest about that, right? Sorry, Rob. It really is nothing against you, nothing against the Patriots. It's, he's got too many rings. So we're, I'm watching this game, and they're kind of slowly imploding, and Jose Lobatone, who we have two catchers that shouldn't be on any major league roster, and they won't be next year, but that's another story. That was our Achilles heel all year, and it, it proved itself in the end. But Jose Lobatone, lo and behold, actually got a hit, which is a miracle. And he's on first base, and the catcher throws down to first. And he looks like he slides back in, but Joe Madden comes out and says, no, we got to review this. I think he's out. And they show that his leg actually at one point comes off the bag and it looks like the tag is on there. And so they're reviewing this play. And Ron Darling, who's a former pitcher of the Mets, he's doing the color commentary. And he just offhandedly says, I wonder how many of you guys caught this. He says, Jose Lobatone is praying right now. I'll never be bad again. Please just once rule in my favor. Now, did anybody catch that amazing theological statement that was right in the middle of a baseball game? It was quid pro quo. Uh, bless me on my future obedience. I'll never be bad again. Please just once rule in my favor. Ron Darling theology. Right there before he was called out. I guess he wasn't going to be faithful again. Um, so there's this, it's in us, and it's, it's so ingrained. We, we see something like that, and we probably didn't even catch it because people say stuff like that all the time. But Jesus is showing us, wait a minute, that's not how the kingdom works at all. It doesn't work like that. So let's go through this parable. First of all, verse 2, we have a contract, okay? So these first-hour workers were told in verse 2, after agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day. They have a contract. We are in agreement with denarius a day. And that's actually pretty generous. Four denarius a week would feed a day worker. Four denarius a week. This is a day and a denarius. Hey, that's pretty good. That's, that's, that's a good wage. So they agree on it. And then verses three to seven, we're starting to see the compassion of the landowner. And there are clues here that the landowner doesn't need the work as much as he is giving the work to those who are in need. He keeps hiring work. So the first hour workers is 6 a.m., okay? And a Jewish workday, 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. is the workday. So he goes out at 6 a.m. and then he goes out at, at 9 a.m., he goes out at noon, and he hires more workers, okay? So he goes out and he sees these workers that nobody's picked up yet. And he says, you too go into the vineyards and whatever's right, I'll give you because he saw them standing idle in the marketplace. And then he went about the sixth and ninth hour and saw more and he did the same. And then he goes out at the 11th hour. This is now 5 p.m. And he says to them, why are you standing here idle all day? And they say, because no one's hired us. And he says, you go into the vineyard too. 
He's showing compassion. So this landowner is abounding in his, his grace. Now, the way that the Jewish system worked, Deuteronomy 20, 14, 14, 15 says, you shall give him his hire on the day he earns it before the sun goes down, for he's poor and sets his heart upon it, lest he cry against you to the Lord and it be sin to you. So um, the day laborers, you know, they live marginally and they're to be paid at the end of the day. And so, so here, um, Jesus, or the worker here, um, let me just back up for a minute. So the idea here is that he's being gracious to them and giving them this, um, this grace. And the idea here t- for us to take home from this is to see that we don't come with this mindset that we deserve more. It's all about his bounty. Psalm 50 says, God says, if I was hungry, I wouldn't tell you. You see, the idea here is that we think that when we come to God, that God is holding out a sign, or we're holding out a sign that says help wanted, and that it's really about us. But in actuality, God's actually holding out a sign that says help available, and it's by grace. And so we live on the welfare of Jesus. And it's quite humbling, isn't it? We need to be thankful for his eternal provision of salvation, but then his daily provision for us. And so he's being gracious to these 11th hour workers, but the first hour workers somehow forgot that. And so the complaint arises. And and the complaint is, it says they thought they would receive more. But each of them received it in areas. And so on receiving it, they grumbled. And now they, they lay out their complaint. You have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. And you know, that's an interesting complaint, isn't it? One of the scripture readings, did you catch it this morning? It was 2 Peter 1.1. 1, 1 that says he's given us equal standing by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Equal standing. We're all equal in Christ. We've been given this equal standing. And so we can't have this mindset that, wait a minute. I remember years ago, I mean, I've told this story. We were, years ago, I was in um, London on a short-term mission trip, and we were in neighborhoods in London, we were actually told, we were given jobs to go knock on doors, and we were handing out information, inviting people to a church, and trying to, to share our faith, and, you know, in, in London, where this part of London, the delivery, the Pizza Hut delivery is done on a moped, so there's people driving around, they've got bungee straps and pizzas on the back of their moped, and this guy who was a Muslim guy sees us witnessing like this and he delivers his pizza and he comes roaring up on his moped and he pulls right in front of me and he shuts off his moped now this is like you know before al-qaeda's like reached you know full tilt i'd probably be really scared now if if, you know seeing i mean i could tell this guy was not happy he knew who we were and he wanted and he just he had memorized the quran and he want, and he basically got in my face and he was like, you're telling me and you're telling these people that if they just believe in Jesus, that all their sins will be forgiven. 
And here I have memorized the Quran and I have worked so hard and you're telling me that this person, somebody else could kill somebody, but as long as they believe in Jesus, their sins will be forgiven. And I said, that's correct. (laughs) And he put his helmet back on and zoomed off on his moped, never to be seen again. And it was just a really interesting worldviews at play. That's what's going on here, similar idea, okay? There's this comparison, like this is not fair. This does not make sense, okay? And so here's the thing, and, and you know, there's kind of, how do you know if we're grumbling at the landowner? And there's a couple tests that we can put on ourselves to, to kind of see if this is in us. But the difficulty is we live in a crazy world, right? And there are crooked things that God will make straight in his time. But in the craziness of this world, let me just give you a couple scenarios. You'll have a boyfriend and a girlfriend who have an unwanted pregnancy from one mistake of passion, and now they're pregnant. And then you've got another godly couple that have been married for 15 years praying for a child, and they can't have a child. And then it turns out these two are related, and how does one think about the other? You think they struggle with envy? Uh, not kidding. How about the faithful pastor who's faithful with his people, preaches the word, and his church just gets smaller? And another guy who's unfaithful, and he's actually got having an affair, and yet his church is growing leaps and bounds. And so the one labors for years and years and sees little fruit, another's secretly doing stuff he shouldn't be doing, and yet he's got tons and thousands of followers. It like doesn't make sense. Another runs his company honestly, doesn't cheat, doesn't lie, plays by the rules, doesn't hire illegals, and yet the cheaters and the liars are prospering so much that he gets run out of business. You get pushed out of your job because some other whippersnapper who's the Johnny-come-lately all of a sudden hits, strikes gold, and the manager loves him, and it turns out you know he's related to so-and-so, or, I mean, it's just crazy stuff that happens, Right? And, and that's, that's the world we live in. It's like, Lord, you're allowing that to happen and I have been faithful and you're not doing this for me. Many of you have heard a couple of my stories, you know, early on when I was, began a ministry, I began in youth ministry and I tore up my knee um, playing tackle football on a youth event on a uh, turkey bowl. Anyway, I'd had knee surgery, I'm in crutches, and I'm still leading this youth event. I actually broke up a fight with my crutches. These two kids, went, and I got between them with a crutch. You know, I can't even walk real well. And this particular day of, of youth ministry was not a great day. We got all the way out, like 25 minutes from the church, and actually probably about a half hour, and these kids are hungry. And I realized I had left the meat for the cookout back in the fridge at church. And now these middle school kids, when they get hungry, I mean, and if there's more than 30, there's like a new rule. It's like chaos, okay? And there was more than 30. So it was not going well. So I get back that evening. I'm tired. My knee's swollen. And I had to do this paper for seminary. And I had to get it done on Saturday because I was a strict Sabbatarian need to observe the Lord's Day, and I will not do any work on Sunday, so I got to get this thing done. And so I labor hard, and when I get done, somehow 
I deleted the paper. And it was my interpretation on Song of Solomon, how it relates to Christ and the church, and I deleted it. And I was so mad at God that I punched him. It just happened to be the wall at the church. And I punched a hole right through the wall. Thankfully, I didn't hit a stud. And, I, and really what I was punching was God. Because I was like, God, this is the thanks you give me. I have labored for you all day. I have done this, and, I, and this is what you give me for be, being obedient to you? This is how you reward me? And now I got a big hole in the wall that, in God's sense of humor, that ended up becoming my office later when I got hired by the church. <laughs> One of the elders graciously came and patched the wall and fixed it for me. And, uh, and you'd think I'd learned my lesson, but then years later, some of you may have heard the story as well, that I was the same trip that I was going to London. And I, this is, you know, we're the moped and the Muslim guy. Well, that, before we left that morning, I had to take my dog over to the Rushton's house. And I was running late to church. And they're going to watch the dog for a week. And I'm speeding on Montgomery Village Avenue like there's no tomorrow. I'm late for church. And lo and behold, when the police are standing in the street, it's not good. Especially when they're pointing you to get over. And it's Sunday morning. I'm in a suit and tie. I'm the pastor. I'm late. And I was so flustered, I got out of the car. You, I mean, I'm an idiot. You know, you don't do that with police, particularly in Montgomery County. I mean, they just, get back in that car. And so I wasn't exactly endearing myself to the police at that point. And I told him when he got there that I'm a pastor, I'm late to church, I'm going on a mission trip, I'm going to be out of the country. I started giving all the reasons why I was late. And he said, oh, you're going, you're going to go out of the country. How long are you going to be gone? I said, well, about two weeks. He said, oh, you'll be back in plenty of time to play this, pay this ticket or, or to, appear in, to appear in court. And so he gave me, and I, I was trying to get out of it. And he just said, wait a minute. He said, I've been out here for a while this morning. And basically, you're my prize. Like, nobody has gone as fast as you on this road this morning. Like, there's no way. And so when he left, went back to his vehicle I was mad at God again. And I wanted to say, like, this is the thanks you give me? And it was like the Holy Spirit just said to me, shut up. You're worthy of a ticket. Like, who do you think you are? You, you deserve that ticket. You're speeding. Like, you can't just say, well, because I'm, a, I'm obedient, like, you can disobey the rules. Like, you deserve that. And so we have to come back to this mindset of, what do we deserve? You see, the moralist type of thinking, Tim Keller has this great quote about the moralist. And he says, you know, he says, I must be bad to be suffering. But under the guilt, though, there's always anger towards God. Why? Because the moralists believe that God owes them. The whole point of moralism is to put God into one's debt. Because you've been so moral, you don't feel you deserve suffering. So moralism tears you up for at one level you say, what did I do to deserve this? But on another level, you think I probably did everything to deserve this. So the moralist suffers. So if the moralist suffers, he or she must either feel mad at God because I've been performing so well or mad at self because I've been not performing so well or both at the same time. And so we have to come back to reminding ourselves of these three particular verses. Job 41.11 41.11 says, Who has a claim against me that I must pay? Everything under heaven belongs to me. Romans 11.35 Who 
Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? God can never be taken held hostage by miserable moralists who claim to deserve the ransom of blessings. God is a debtor to no man, and so we have to resign all thoughts to make God answer to our supposed obedience. Jesus says our attitude should be like the servant in Luke 17.10 who says, So when, when you have done all that is commanded, you say we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. We've only done our duty. Now let me ask you this. Has a police officer ever stopped you, pulled you over, and thanked you for obeying the traffic laws? Has that ever happened? Have they ever just thanked you? I just want to thank you for stopping at that red light. I just want to thank you for obeying the speed limit. I want to thank you for wearing your seatbelt, and I want to thank you for coming to a complete stop. Has that anybody, anybody ever happened? Because you've only done your duty. Of course they don't pull you over, because that's what you're supposed to do. You've only done your duty. So why do you want to be thanked? And why do you think God owes you or should thank you because you have only done your duty? You have just come to a complete stop or put on your seatbelt or gone down the road. I mean, the IRS has never sent me a thank you for sending in my taxes. I'm still waiting for the thank you. They don't do that. But why do we think that God all of a sudden owes us? R.C. Sproul says, never ask God to give you what you deserve because he might give it to you. What do we deserve? The wages of sin is death. We are debtors to mercy alone. So the clarification that Jesus gives in this parable to the, to the first hour workers is the clarification is you agreed for a denarius and I have the right to give to others what I want. God is the sovereign dispenser of his gifts, of his talents, of financial blessings, of whatever he wants to do. And, and he says, is your eye evil because I am good? That's literally more the idea than begrudge my generosity. Is your eye evil because I'm good? You see, 1 Corinthians 12, 11 says, all these are empowered by one and the same spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. God sovereignly gives the gifts to his body as he wills. And so there should be no pride that we have a gift and there shouldn't be envy over someone else that has a gift. It rather should be a thankfulness to God for what he has done. And we should rejoice with others who rejoice and content in our lot and to be satisfied with God's providence. But then we get to the cancer of the soul. And this is really the point Jesus is getting at. Is, is your eye evil because I am good? You see, the heart of the matter is always the heart of the matter. And here the heart is the matter of the complaint. You see, nothing exposes our greed like generosity. Isn't that interesting? When God gives to another and not to me. When my friend gets the new car and I'm driving the clunker. When your friends get the plush house and you're still in the apartment or upside down in your mortgage. When your coworker gets the promotion and the praise and not you. When your friends are expecting and you've miscarried. When your friends behave so well and they get the rewards, and they're doing so great in academically and athletics, and yours are not. Or then you volunteer at church, and you volunteer in the nursery, and you find out at the other church, they actually pay their workers. Man, I, you know, I had to tell, man, don't keep that quiet, man. Well, you, know, <laughs> you were fine working down there until you realize that some church down there, they actually pay these nursery workers, you know? And then, boy, did that plant a seed, wow, you know? 
So are we able to rejoice? The 10th commandment, Westminster Shorter Catechism, 10th commandments do not covet. And the Shorter Catechism says, what is forbidden in the 10th commandment? And the answer is the 10th commandment forbids all discontentment with our own estate, envying or grieving at the good of our neighbor in all inordinate motions or affections to anything that is his. And so Jonathan Edwards says a lot about envy. He says the spirit of envy is very contrary to the spirit of heaven. We're all rejoice in the happiness of others and it is the very spirit of hell itself which is a most hateful spirit and one that feeds itself on the ruin of the prosperity and happiness of others on which account some have compared envious persons to caterpillars which delight most in devouring the most flourishing trees and plants. Envy's related to caterpillars. You see, this is what happened to Jesus. Pilate knew that the chief priests wanted Jesus crucified. And Mark 15 says that he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priest had delivered him up. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And the crowds went with Barabbas over Jesus and delivered him up to be crucified because of the envy that the chief priests were losing influence and authority and the people were now chasing Jesus. When, he raised Je when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, they said, the whole world's going after him. We're going to lose everything. The whole establishment. It's going down the tubes. We got to kill him. And so they went after Jesus to kill him. And is that not what you see with this proximity in the Bible? You have Cain and then you have Abel. And Cain is envious of Abel's sacrifice and so he rises up and kills him. You see, we have to be careful about this as parents. You know, we get two kids playing, right? And the one kid has the toy and it's their toy and they're happy playing with it, but now the other kid comes and grabs the toy and they want the toy because they're envious. And then we come in the middle and we just take the toy and we remove the toy and say, neither one of you can play with the toy. What have we done? We have rewarded the envious, jealous child because the envious, jealous child isn't so much wanting the toy, he wants nobody to have the toy because that's what envy and jealousy does. It wants to kill anybody having it. And so if you as the parent just remove it, say, well, I removed the conflict, you've actually rewarded the, the, the jealous child. It's a crazy thing in the heart. And we see that with Joseph and his brothers. He gets a coat of many colors. What do his brothers do? They're not content until they rip the coat off of him and throw him into a pit. We talked about Saul and David. And, and, and it says, from that day on, Saul eyed to kill him. And a harmful spirit came upon him. And then one day he's playing his harp and David or Saul picks up a spear and hurls a spear at him and David eluded him twice. That's what we see with Mordecai and Haman in the story of Esther. And, and Mordecai will not bow his knee to Haman and he can't stand it. Can't stand it, he's got to kill him. We see this in next week, the elder brother and the prodigal son that Ben's going to preach. We see it here with the first hour workers and the last hour workers. And we see it with Jesus' crucifixion. And so the remedy here this morning for all of us is to rest in this truth that the first, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. Go and labor in his vineyard. We have work to do. 
Be thankful that you picked to work for him and be thankful that he brings 11th hour workers like Sheldon Locust at 95 years old to be baptized. He can save thieves on a cross. He can bring people late in Christ to himself. Rejoice in that. Isn't that a wonderful thing? We don't say, well, we bore the burden and the heat of the day. I can't believe that they're doing that. No. We, 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 we excited that others are being brought in. And then what happens in ministry is all of a sudden the people you discipled all of a sudden become bigger and better than you. I've seen that happen many times. Many of the guys that, that I'm like, I remember when you were nothing and now like you're, you're a hot shot. You're like big time. And it would be easy to say, man, I'm envious rather than to rejoice and say, wow, praise God. We got to root out this spirit of Peter. You remember Peter when Jesus restored him, he looked over at John and said, well, what about him? You know, envy's always got that closeness and proximity. What about him? And Jesus said to Peter, if it's my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. You follow me. The Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, 10, by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I but the grace of God that is with me. As we work in his vineyard, grace doesn't make us lazy, but it doesn't make us legalistic either, that we're working quid pro quo, that he's going to give you some reward in return. We do it out of his grace and entrust ourselves to him. Martin Luther in his commentary on Deuteronomy 8 and Deuteronomy 8 is a reminder that if we think we're wealthier and we've been blessed because of our work and and our wealth and that's what he says you're going to be tempted to think it was your wealth that's deuteronomy 8 it's not you and he says blessings god's blessings at times come to us through our labors and at time without our labors but never because of our labors for god always gives them because of his undeserved mercy and we say all of our works you've done for us and so in closing this morning Let me just remind you a little bit about heaven and where we're going. I'm going to give you a little extended quote from Jonathan Edwards where he talks about rewards in heaven. I want you to think about this as we close. He says, Christ will reward all according to their works. He that gained 10 pounds was made ruler over 10 cities. And he that gained 5 pounds over 5 cities. This is a parable of the minas in Luke 19. And then he quotes from 2 Corinthians 9, he says, He that sows sparingly shall reap sparingly, and he that sows bountifully shall reap bountifully. And the Apostle Paul tells us that as one star differs from another in glory, so it shall be in the resurrection of the dead, 1 Corinthians 15, 41. Christ tells us that he who gives a cup of cold water to a disciple in in his name shall in no wise lose his reward. But this could not be true if a person should have no greater reward for doing many works than if he did but few. It will be no damp to the happiness of those who have lower degrees of happiness and glory that there are others advanced in glory above them. What he's getting at is there are degrees of rewards and blessings in heaven. All shall be perfectly happy Everyone shall be perfectly satisfied. Every vessel that is cast into this, there shall be no such thing as envy in heaven, but perfect love shall reign through the whole society, and those who are so high in glory as other will not envy those that are higher. 
but they will have so great and strong and pure, pure love to them that they will rejoice in their superior happiness. Their love to, to them will be such that they will rejoice that they are happier than themselves, and so instead of having a damp to their own happiness, it will add to it. They will see it to be fit that they have been so eminent in works of righteousness that they should be most highly exalted in glory, and they will rejoice in having that done, that it is fittest to be done. And he goes on, and you can Google Jonathan Edwards on rewards because he goes on for several pages, but if you've never thought about this, that this idea that well, we're, you know, we're all equal in Christ in the sense of justification, but there is this idea that God will reward, and some will be, have more rewards in heaven than others, but everybody will be perfectly happy according to their capacity. And so it's worth reading and reflecting on. But in this life, people struggle with that. But as the church, we should rejoice that some get lifted up and, and blessed and God sovereignly dispenses and bestows his blessings and our job is to show charity towards all of our neighbors, not just the ones that are being held down and we're being lifted up. That would be not right. The last will be first and the first will be last. Let's pray. Lord, there is great mystery in this, but we know that you are sovereign and that you are good and that we deserve nothing and that you have freely chosen us by your grace. And we have nothing that merits or deserves your favor. And thank you for loving us and making us your children. Root out any grumbling spirit that is within us. And may we be able to rejoice when you bless others and not us. And pray that, Lord, you would remind us of our eternal home and help us to keep plugging away and being laborers in your vineyard. For we ask in Jesus' name, amen.